Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 11th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that won't get banned for making two mana on turn one. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad to be here for our 11th episode. Uh, Looking forward to sharing all of our insight and picks and that good stuff with you guys this week. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis, why don't you break down uh, our segments for today? Sure. This week, we have four segments, as we usually do. Segment one is our top movers, where we will be looking at the cards that have moved the most in the past week that you should be aware of. Segment two is our cards to watch. This is where James and I are going to share with you the cards we've got our eyes on as potential money makers. Uh, I don't think I have gotten through a segment two announcement yet without stumbling over that. Maybe one of these episodes. Segment three is our uh, metagame week in review. This week we are looking at the Legacy God Challenger Finals. Uh, I think this took place in Japan. Uh, With a name like that, I would expect as much. And uh, segment four, our topic of the week. This week we're going to talk about buying collections. We're going to chat a little bit about that and give you guys some some insight as James and I have both done that a fair bit. Uh, So let's just jump in right at the top, segment one, top movers. So James, why don't you tell us about our first card this week? Sure. So the uh, first big mover of the week was Cryptic Gateway Foils, an onslaught rare, uh, moved from about $11 up towards 20 for about a 70% gain. Um, and this is the tail end of a spike that we saw start uh, over two weeks ago, um, coming to its natural conclusion. Yeah, I don't think there's anything too exciting here. Just the, this this particular card's price spike wrapping up uh, kind of bled across our weeks here. Uh, next up is Mind Rack Demon from Shadows Over Innistrad. This is the same card that shows up in the Blessed versus Cursed dual deck. It's the foil promo. Uh, the normal Shadows Over Innistrad copy went from 250 to 450 this week for about an 80% gain. James and I have been talking about this as best as we can figure. It looks like this is due to some level of standard speculation. People are getting kind of excited about the card. Maybe they decided the set overall was lower power level and they think Mine Rack Demon is looking a little better. So I think this is just some some initial excitement over a fairly reasonably looking card early in the season. Nothing to get worked up over yet as I have, I don't think either of us have heard of any reason uh, to think that there's something big going on here quite yet. No, I mean, I, and I think because it's in the in the dual deck, um, you know, it's it's going to be held back from any kind of a really significant spike. I don't think this is a card that can hold or sustain uh, a price over ten dollars. But there are a few cards it interacts with profitably. Languish is minus four, minus four, and Mind Rack Demon has a five toughness, um, which is going to be very relevant um, because it's also good versus Grasp of Darkness. Um, it's also good versus um, Gold Knight Castigator, which as a 4-9 can only attack in for 4 and can easily be blocked by the demon. Um, if people are running Thunderbreak Regent, um, it also blocks profitably there. And if they're running things like um, 
uh, Dragon Lair Ojitai, you know, it can block and trade. So um, it, it may just end up being a reasonable body. I think that people were initially scared off because Delirium was presumed to be, um, you know, uh, an eternal format uh, or a limited mechanic. Um, where it was just going to be too slow and too unreliable. But I have a feeling that there's enough cards. Uh, people are starting to see that there are enough cards in this set that if you really want a Delirium-flavored deck, you may be able to pull it off. Testing will bear it out. Um, but uh, you know, if you pre-ordered these at a low price, feel free to go ahead and try to um, flip them out um, as pre-orders to somebody else if you can get $5 for them and you pick them up at 2 and you have an order forthcoming. Um, otherwise, I'd, I would move on to other greener pastures. Is that... Uh, the three mana sacrifice effect that can hit creatures or planeswalkers and then both is the both conditional on uh, delirium. Yes. Okay. I mean, maybe maybe people are looking for another uh, desecration demon heroes downfall type of thing. You know, this is not a six six, but it's a strong four five, and this turns on your three mana removal spell, which is very powerful, especially entering a standard with. Uh, four planeswalkers in this set and Jace being so popular. So maybe it's perceived to be a strong enabler for what could be one of the best pieces of removal in the set. Yeah, it's funny because in a format with um, Fetchlands, Delirium would have kind of been an, an obviously powerful mechanic. Without it, people are are forced to use their imagination and some strong testing um, gauntlets to try to figure out um, how reliable it is and in which color combinations is it most reliable. Um, but I, I have to presume here that people are thinking this is one of the top end uh, cards in in a black deck um, that has found some way to make use of it. Yeah, quite possible. Um, all right, next up is Westvale Abbey. This is also from Shadows Over Innistrad. I, I'm, I'm talking about this one because I saw this list that I think is pretty cool, so I just wanted to mention it. Uh, we've seen Westville Abbey jump from four bucks to seven fifty this week for not quite a hundred percent gain. But this list was linked to me today. It's a standard list that uses Cryptolith Rites, which is the two mana enchantment that turns all your creatures into birds of paradise. Um, and it, it plays a lot of very cheap creatures. And one of its major win conditions, the payoff, is, is Westville Abbey. You activate, you sacrifice five guys. You turn this into a what is it like nine seven flying lifelink indestructible? I think it might have trample too, but I mean, not a nine power on a lifelinker that's indestructible is extremely good in standard. Um, so I, it looks like there's some excitement about that. People are realizing this may not be another Elbrus. This actually may be pretty playable. And again, I'm not. We shouldn't be. You should not be holding on to these copies at this price. But it is interesting that people are starting to get excited about this. Yeah. Again, I think people need to keep in mind that as a large set that's going to be heavily opened, um, the odds of any of these rares um, holding a price over 3 to $5 is extremely low. They really need to be showing up not just in a single deck um, and certainly not a tier two deck. It needs to be showing up in two to three tier one decks for a rare to hold a price. Think about you know a card like Sylvan Caryatid um, or Cor- uh, Corsair of Crufix. Those are the kind of rares, uh, or Goblin Rabble Master in its day, those are the kind of rares that can hold that kind of price tag. Um Anything you know over two to three dollars, I'm not interested in Abbey, and I feel very confident that regardless of how well it does in in standard, we're going to see an opportunity to get copies for the long term, maybe early mid summer, when most people's focus will be on things like Vintage Masters and Eldritch Moon. Yeah, so much product. It's funny. 
as you started your sentence of standard cards need to be in multiple decks, the first card I thought of was Corsair Crufix, and that's the one you said. And there were so many yep. choices. The people just need to keep in mind that no, no matter how exciting a rare is, unless it is the kind of rare that is likely to see strong modern um, play alongside, say, some strong legacy or casual or EDH play, and it's predictably fantastic, you know, cards like Snapcaster Mage. Um, uh, you, you should steer clear of the rares until they fall to their natural lows two to three weeks after the set is released. Yeah, I completely agree. And Westville Abbey is not the type of card that lots of decks are going to be able to play. Not very many decks can support producing that many creatures. Um, all right, so what's next for us, James? We've got Pendril Miss at a Weatherlight. This is a blue rare that uh, basically forces all creatures to carry uh, a one uh, colorless mana payment requirement uh, in their owner's upkeep. Um, it sees occasional play in EDH. It's a casual card. More importantly, it's a reserve list card, and hence it's doubling from 2 to $4 this week for 100% gain. So we have the Tabernacle at Pendril Veil the Land. We have Pendril Mist, the Enchantment, and Magus of the Tabernacle, the Creature. I guess that would make an artifact next, right? I don't think they can put this in an artifact, though. Yeah, I mean, not a cheap one. Uh, it's not the, not the kind of effect you would want hanging around in standard for two mana. <laughs> Maybe we see this as a uh, Planeswalker emblem at some point in the future. That's interesting. Yeah, on a blue Planeswalker or a blue-white Planeswalker. It'd be interesting, too, because you could have that be a cheaper ultimate since it's not necessarily devastating. Like, you only have to activate your Planeswalker twice or something. Yeah, these, these kind of things are, are, are a little weird, and they only do them every once in a while because even though they are technically in flavor for blue and white, they are mana denial, and and land destruction um, uh, is not something that uh, Wizards seems beholden to offer to white very often anymore. I mean, we haven't seen an Armageddon reprint in a long time. Yeah, that's completely right. And I mean, Tabernacle was like 20-some-odd years ago. Uh, Pendril Mist would have been like 15 or 18 and Magus, which is the most recent one was still probably 10 years ago. So I suppose we haven't seen it recently. All right. Next up is Shatterstorm. The foil copy from 10th edition uh, was the last foil copy and uh, possibly the only foil copy. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, we've seen this jump from 45 to 95 for a $50 game. It's a little over hundred percent. I feel like we talked about Shatterstorm not that many weeks ago on here when it's jumped from like 25 to 45 or something. Uh, I mean, I'm not surprised to see this jump. Shatterstorm foils have been expensive and rare for a while now. There was probably only one or two copies around 45 bucks as it were. Uh, the two of them got sold and now it's $100 again. I still don't want to be anywhere near this card because Wizards will print this at like uncommon in you know, conspiracy or something like that. And those foils will be $3.00. Uh, and you know, the 10th edition ones will carry some amount of value, but they're not going to hold a hundred dollar price tags. So if you've got any foil shatterstorms, I'd be selling those right now. Even if it's something that you own in your own personal collection, I still think I'd be getting out of these guys. Yeah. hundred percent agree with that. The 10th edition uh, version is the only foil. Um, you were correct. And it's from 2007. So it's, you know, nine years ago at this point. Um, hence the price tag um, alongside its usefulness as a sideboard card in modern. Um, the other danger scenario for a card like this is that because it's a sideboard card um, and because affinity may at some point, you know, maybe next week, maybe a, a year from now, maybe two years from now, get targeted um, to keep modern fresh. 
um, as a potentially dominant deck that people would prefer to have out of the format. Um, there is some some risk that Affinity just kind of falls off the tier one table and down into a tier two status, um, at, at which point you definitely would not be wanting to hold Foil Shatterstorm. Yep, completely agree. Completely agree. All right, finish it off for us, James. So our last uh, top mover of the week is Conspiracy Foils, um, last printed in uh, Time Spiral Block as one of the time-shifted cards. Um, and uh, the card was also seen in Mercadian Masks. Um, started the week at about $15, finished at 55 The only two foils available on TCG currently are in the, are priced at $95 um, as people who you know had bought them out or are hoarding some. Um, are testing the waters to try to see if anybody will bite. Um, this is a card I wouldn't even remotely consider buying for any reason at this price, um, but I would certainly love to sell some to somebody, you know, anywhere over $40, I'd be happy to get out on this one. I've got a foil, but I think it's time spiral, so it's not such a ridiculous price tag. Disappointing. I mean, the, it, it's a card that sees occasional casual play, occasional EDH play. Um, it's not a massive card in any format, to my knowledge. Um, but it, uh, a buyout move started on this card, the regular copies and the foils over six weeks ago, I think. And this has just been, you know, continuing, um, as people have attempted to corner the market. Um, it's the kind of thing I try to stay away from as much as possible. Yeah. These are, you know, even if you're ahead of the curve on cards like this, it is so hard to actually realize a real profit. So I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, okay, segment two, Cards to Watch. This is where James and I tell you guys what cards we've got our eyes on as potential money makers. James, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Sure. So my first pick this week is uh, a card out of Commander 2015. It's the Red Rare Mizzix's Mastery. Um, it's three and a red, a sorcery. Exile target card that's an instant or sorcery from your graveyard. For each card exiled this way, copy it, and you may cast the copy without paying its mana cost. Then you exile this card. Um, it also has an overload option for five and three red, um, which is what makes it potentially devastating in, in a format like Commander or in some random casual deck. Um, but it's, what really got my attention was that it showed up in the sixth place deck in a SEG Invitational Qualifier, uh, a new combo deck uh, built around um, Enter the Infinite, uh, four copies of this card, uh, two Personal Tutor, uh, a whole bunch of counter spells, um, fast mana, and uh, card selection effects, where you basically um, end up uh, drawing your entire deck. You use Conflagrate to discard... Um, as many cards as you need to to kill your opponent. And Mizzix's Mastery is the way that you get off the Enter the Infinite. Um, pretty rare for a Commander card to show up in Legacy. Uh, even more rare for it to show up as a 4 of. The overall supply right now is <laughs> relatively low. There might be something like 200 copies across the internet. And what really got me interested was that most of the copies were starting to be priced in the 350 to 450 range. But there was a couple of vendors on eBay and elsewhere that had... Um, many, many copies that they'd been hoarding in, in and around 2 to 250. So I moved in on 30 copies this morning. My confidence level on this card is a 7 out of 10 that it will end up in the next couple of years being something like an 8 to $10 card and afford all of us a 200% gain. I can't help but appreciate 
your comment that commander cards rarely show up in legacy uh true name nemesis sort of <laughs> sort of started that trend with the first commander set right <laughs> yeah but i mean over out of all of the cards they printed it's basically been true name containment priest uh now mystics mastery and and very few others so um they seem to be moving away um from printing cards and commander that are are legacy specific uh you know especially because they had to redo the case assortments um in the second half of the spring of 2014 i believe um when they printed uh true name nemesis uh, or was it 2013 can't remember which year what spring it was but basically true name nemesis was a disaster for them um on the retail side in terms of distribution and because of that they seem to be refocusing on printing cards that are specific to you know the needs of commander players um first and foremost um, but, it, you know, anytime a card like this that has a very unique effect, um, a very weird effect, a powerful effect, um, you know, shows up in the top eight of a legacy tournament, it definitely has my attention. And I like the price movement thus far. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting the way to, to look at the history of those cards. You're right. They started out printing those extremely obvious legacy cards so it was scavenging news and true name and containment priest this time lately they seem to have kind of gone a different direction as the cards are not uh, explicitly for legacy like they've been in the past but you look at things like mrs mizix's mastery um and that blue card it wasn't cryptic command but it was cryptic command-esque which was also very powerful and people were looking at for legacy uh, and it's almost like they've kind of just, they've stopped printing legacy cards, but they brought the power level up on some of the cards that they're printing in these sets in general. So people are kind of have to work a little harder to figure out if they're good in legacy, but maybe they are. I kind of like that because containment priest was extremely obvious and the price jumped. Like, I don't think it was ever cheap because it was just, obviously this is a legacy card, but if we're going in this direction where they're going to slip more powerful cards into these sets that might not be noticed immediately, it's going to leave more money on the table in commander sets uh, for people to pick up. If you can get ahead of the cards that are turn out to be legacy plans. Right. I, I was talking to Jay, I was talking to Jason Alt from BSB and our fellow co-writer on uh, MDG price um, earlier today, asking him what he thought of mastery. He's, he wasn't too impressed. Um, on its performance thus far in Commander, um, on the basis that it's typically played in the Mizzix of the Ismagus deck. Um, this is the two blue, red, two, two legendary goblin wizard that whenever you cast an instant or a sorcery spell with converted mana cost greater than the number of experience counters you have, you get an experience counter. Um, instant and sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast for each experience counter you have. So it's a very blue, red, heavy instant sorcery combo specific EDH general or lieutenant. And uh, the the deck hasn't gained a ton of traction, and hence, you know, mastery is is not not even in the top 100 or 200 cards in the format. Um, but I like it because it's a card that gets better and better over time. It's it's the kind of card, uh, and I think the, p- the penultimate example lately has been Jace Friend's Prodigy, where the level of different uh, a level of power across multiple different synergies and the likelihood that those synergies will expand as the catalog of cards for the entire game expands is so high that it's the kind of card I, I feel, you know, confident owning. It's also, uh, it also has um, naming conventions that are specific to Ravnica. So it's unlikely to see a reprint anytime in the near future, which is also a nice protective state for any spec that you're holding. Absolutely, absolutely. And at four mana for casting any instant or sorcery for free, uh, I could see a, like, you know, Faithless Looting Infinite 
under the infinite combo deck kind of pop up four is just cheap enough that this is conceivably um powerful legacy so i wouldn't be surprised if that's not the last we see of that combo deck all right i'm gonna move on uh speaking of jason all anyways my pick next my first pick for this week is realms uncharted from rise of the eldrazi uh this is a mid-long ish term card Uh, my confidence level on this is five so i'm not you know this isn't a ball uh, out of the ballpark but i do like it it's about a quarter right now and i think that's really why i like this card is it's so cheap so cheap um if you were playing back during rise of eldrazi you would remember that this card pre-ordered for like eight dollars at the time it was considered the next gifts ungiven uh i mean it was it was it looked like something special um history bears out that this didn't do anything it fell flat on its face and we've never seen much of it since uh but with this new uh gitrog the frog horror monster from innistrad that uh really loves your lands and putting lands into your graveyard this card is suddenly a lot more interesting it goes from three mana tutor two lands to three mana tutor two lands draw two cards and in a gitrog deck you're gonna have lots of ways to get those lands out of your graveyard anyways so this does a lot of work for you the reason i like this card is because it's so cheap at a quarter this can see very little uh increase in demand and move up to a dollar or two which results in a several hundred percent increase so if you can actually pick these up at a quarter to 50 cents and then buy list them for a dollar or a dollar 50 in uh in a few months you'll definitely made a pretty good profit there if you can score especially if you can score a lot of copies of this he wasn't he was lukewarm on this card in his article this week um i like it a little bit more i think that it's very capable of doing a lot of work in EDH in general, especially Get Rock. And you never know where we'll see this pop up in Modern or Legacy. It hasn't really done anything there yet, but neither did Amulet of Vigor, Vigor and then suddenly it broke the format. So uh, given this card's synergy with a new, very popular-looking commander, um, how much people wanted this to be good, uh, I think that there's definitely room for some... For some growth here on an already low buy-in price well it's certainly interesting from the perspective that there are basically no foils left on tcg of this card i see one near mint foil japanese for about 15 shipped um otherwise it's just sold out um and there might be something like call it a 100 to a yeah about 100 copies um of the regular and like you said there's almost nothing to be lost um it's basically the gifts ungiven of lands um we didn't actually read it out, so let me do that. It's an instant for two and a green, and note that it's an instant. That's certainly uh, of relevance. It'd be a lot less powerful as a sorcery. And what you do is you search your library for four land cards with different names and reveal them. An opponent chooses two of those cards, put the chosen cards into your graveyard and the rest into your hand, then shuffle your library. So like Gifts Ungiven, it gives your opponent a choice, but also like Gifts Ungiven, the intention here is that you're building a deck where the four lands you choose... Um, represent some form of inevitability or they represent a combo or they represent uh, some kind of a cycle where you go, whatever they put in the graveyard, you're going to get back anyway and get to use uh, again. And as you said, with Gitrog Monster, the key clause uh, uh, on that legendary uh, creature is that um, whenever a land goes to the graveyard from anywhere. So even though, um, you know, it doesn't matter that the the cards uh, that go to the graveyard were never in your hand, um, you know, getting them off this card counts as anywhere. And so you're going to draw cards and that is a nice energy and it's open-ended, right? Because even if this doesn't become a huge hit through Gitrog, maybe some other card down the road cements the relationship between, you know, those two 
puzzle pieces and and really brings it to the forefront. It's unlikely to see a reprint anytime soon. Not only is there no demand and no price spike to drive it, um, but it's you know it only really makes sense in a land focused block, and we just came out of one of those, so unlikely to see another one for another five or six years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. All right, so my next card uh, this week is also a confidence level 7 out of 10, um, also a mid to long-term pick, and this time it's Oath of Nisa Foils. Um, as you're almost certainly aware, if you've been popping packs of Oath this winter, um, this is the one green mana enchantment that uh, makes all of your Planeswalkers castable with any color of mana and uh, allows you to look at the top three cards of your library and choose a creature, land, or planeswalker and put it into your hand. Um, I've loved this card since the very beginning. Um, The foils are currently sitting at $6. My target on them would be $12 down the road. Um, My justification is the fact that this card has started to show up in both modern and legacy decks on the fringes as deck builders start to experiment with its potential um, to smooth out draws, to um, achieve card selection, and to set up um, in the casual and EDH scene, you have the potential to you know, be a major puzzle piece in running a five-color or super friend-style Planeswalker-focused deck. Wizards has shown a complete commitment to print multiple Planeswalkers per set, you know, basically from here to eternity. So any card that makes Planeswalkers better and is unlikely to get printed, uh, reprinted on on a regular basis um, has to be something special. One of the nice things about the Oaths is that because they they refer to a specific historical moment in in time and space within the Magic Universe, um, it's not the kind of thing that can be easily reprinted until, say, Modern Masters 2019 or something. Yeah, I, I really like this card. People were real excited about it when it was revealed. That excitement has been tempered lately, but those of us on this side of the game are still keeping an eye on it because we recognize that it does a lot of interesting things. My pet project for this card is shoving it into some sort of mono green modern deck with Oath, Oath of Nyssa, uh, or not Oath of Nyssa, with Nykthos and effects like that that somehow uses Oath of Nyssa to cast like Nickel Bulls Planeswalker or something equally ridiculous <laughs> in this Nykthos stack, right? You that could, like, sounds turn... sweet. That sounds sweet. Yeah, you could like turn three or turn four Nickel Bulls. Like, you know, in standard, it's not really a reasonable strategy, but in modern, you can be, I don't want to say more flimsy, but you can shoot for the sky a little bit more. Uh, so you can put like really like any Planeswalker in this like mono green ramp deck and start casting it. So uh, be, be curious so, to see. I, I love where you're going with this. This is like burning tree emissary into some random t- green two drop. You've got four or five with oath on turn one. You've got uh, five uh, green mana symbols on the table on turn three or four, and you're casting nickel bolus out of nowhere. Um, that's likely to raise some eyebrows. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's not just nickel bolus, right? Like you can go with anything. Play Tezzeret, play Obnixils. Like I, I don't know, I don't know what one the right one is, but it's just interesting that it opens up a lot of doors that previously were not open. Potentially Ugin, right? Although I mean I don't think Oath Nisa really helps with Ugin, but um, well, it it it, it helps. Yeah, tr- true. I guess you could just be running mono, mono green to achieve that. Yeah. Um, although he's probably still one of the the better options in that deck. Uh, okay, so yeah, Oath and Issa Foils, uh, they're currently around 6 bucks. I, I don't expect them to stay there um, for very long. By this time next year, I would expect them to be over 10 Yeah, I like it. 
Okay, my second pick this week is Evolutionary Leap. This is from Magic Origins, recent card. I've got this at a 7 confidence level, although the more I think about it, I'm trending closer to 8. Uh, this is another, I'm going to call this short to long. I don't know, maybe that's irresponsible, but we could see this card move in price in a month, and maybe it'll take two years. I'm not exactly sure. Right now, price tag is at about $0.50 cents per copy, which is way less than it used to be. Um, again, this is another card that I'm pretty sure was pre-ordering at like seven or eight bucks, and even like a month or two later, I think was at um, at multiple dollars. It took a it has taken a long time for this to get for this to get under a dollar. Most recently, I saw the show up in that same CryptoLith right stack that I mentioned earlier with Westvale Abbey. It uses uh, it chains through Blister Pods and Elvish Visionaries and all sorts of cards like that. Uh, to tear through the deck and look for uh, its Ulamog or whatever else you're looking for while generating a ton of value as you go. Um, I, I mean, this is a card that evokes... I mean, there's a reason this card took so long to get cheap. It evokes Memories of Survival of the Fittest, a card that is banned in Legacy. Evolutionary Leap is not Survival of the Fittest, but it does... In, in the world of... Uh, survival of the fittest, birthing pod, and evolutionary leap. It, it, it fits into that category somehow. And the first two were good enough to get banned. So there's still room for leap to be good uh, without being, uh, well, still be playing playable, right? Like we, we know it can be good. Uh, so I like this in standard because it's a very powerful card that's kind of been quiet and under the radar lately that we know is capable of big things. And I could also see this popping up in modern and even legacy uh, without a doubt. Um, so for this cheap of a buy-in price and this powerful of an effect, I think you're very likely to get paid off at some point. I just don't know when. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. The One of the interesting things is that um, Evolutionary Leap comes out of the same set as Jace Finn's Prodigy. And as long as that set is in print, um, it, along with all the other rares in that set, are having their prices suppressed. So I think that Leap, is, if Leap was printed in some other set um, that didn't have a, a super dominant card, um, it would be more like a 2 or $3 card. So the, the fact that you can pick them up at $0.50 cents, um, is largely predicated on the fact that it has only really seen play in the green-white uh, Hardened Scales deck and standard where it did good things. Um, in modern, it has started to show up in some kind of some white green and junk style builds here and there on the fringes. Um, but the problem is that it's typically played as a one of. Um, and I think the critical moment for this card down the road is where somebody uh, figures out a combo with it that's so strong, um, a synergy appears that is potentially so dominant that um, that you want to have four of them because you definitely you want to have it in play at all times. You don't want to just have it for incidental value um, with an additional copy in the sideboard to bring in against removal heavy decks like Jund. Um, it's it's when a synergy appears that says you know digging for that creature you're looking for is going to set off some kind of a combo or chain reaction that I really want to be holding a couple hundred copies of this. And at the current price point, you know, 50 cents and, you know, there'll probably be a summer sale this summer in June or July on star city or something where these will drop down to 25 cents. Um, go ahead, load up on a hundred of these. Um, I find it hard to believe it doesn't, you know, minimum hit three to $4, like you said, somewhere in the next couple of years and allows you to start trading them out on something like Puka trade and in sets um to to get rid of them i also like the foils the foils are sitting somewhere around five or six dollars not unlike um oath of nisa um and you know there's a reasonable amount of 
of both foils and non-foils in stock, you know, hundreds of copies of the non-foils, maybe a hundred copies across the internet of the foils. Um, But that stock will dwindle over time because this card is very much about open-ended synergies. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so a lot of good stuff there for you guys this week. Okay, we are on to segment three, the metagame week in review. This week, we are looking at the six Legacy God Challenger Finals, a legacy tournament from Japan. Uh, so top eight, I'll run through this for you really quick. Uh, Aldra- from uh, first place to eighth, we have Aldrazi Agro, Show and Tell, Jund, Blue Red Delver, Jund, Lands, Merfolk, and Twin Moon Exarch. Uh, I'll let you figure out what that one is. The one thing that jumps out at me looking over these lists is the number of ancient tombs. I see by my count 11 ancient tombs, and we're seeing these in very different decks. Uh, the ancient tomb shows up in Eldrazi. It shows up in Show and Tell, and it's also showing up in that Twin Moon Exarch deck. Ancient tomb uh, had an FTV printing not that long ago. Uh, the price has budged, has moved a little bit since then. Copies are in the $15 to $20 range. But this is a card, it's not on the reserve list, but they're not printing this in anything again, at least anytime soon. Um, the power level on this card is just way too high for pretty much everything. And this is a card that could very easily be $30, $40, or $50. Uh, and with the amount of play it's seen in Legacy, I'm a little surprised it's still $15 to $20 for normal copies. Yeah, I mean, this is showing up showing up in Legacy and Vintage and everything from Colorless Eldrazi decks to Ravager Shops to Imperial Painter, um, Sneak and Show, uh, Shopter Depths, uh, White Black. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's a ton of decks that run this card. And it's interesting because the online copies have gone from, you know, since November, have gone from $2 online where they were printed, I believe, in Vintage Masters, which held them down for a long time to you know the Eldrazi explosion driving them up over five dollars but in the meantime the paper copies have sort of drifted you know in and around 13 to 15 dollars and uh even more interesting is that the expedition copies that just came out in oath have gone down in price i mean they started in and around like 125 130 and now you can get them as low as you know 85 dollars or so um, I love picking them up at that price. This is not a card that outside the, the, the scenarios in which it's already been printed, um, aka Expeditions, FTV, and its original printing, you're ever going to get see get printed again, like for years, um, minimum, because it, it's fast mana, it's too much mana. Every if, if this spring has taught, you know, Drowsy Winter has taught us anything heading into the spring, it's that two mana um, on one land is a bad idea. Um, so it's never seeing a reprint in Standard or for Modern. Um, it's only ever going to see uh, reprints in in uh, vintage masters style products. Um, I guess people uh, might be in some way concerned that it's going to show up in uh, vintage masters. Uh, sorry, eternal masters this summer, um, and that might be holding it back. If it does, then and it's printed at rare, um, you know, it. I, I still think it can probably hold it in the ten to fifteen dollar range, and I'd be looking to move in then. If it doesn't show up on that list, um, I would certainly be looking at picking up some of these uh, expedition versions because, uh, you know, as you said, the the card is showing up in all sorts of different decks. It's, it was a four of in the in the first place deck. It was a three of in the second place deck, um, and again, in four four of in a completely separate deck in eighth place. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I almost want to retroactively add this to my picks of the week. But the Eternal Masters thing is a very good point. So 
Uh, I'm going to hold off on this uh, into really getting interested into this or, or encouraging you guys to because um, that it, they, if they're going to put it someplace, it would be Eternal Masters. But boy, uh, as soon as that set list comes out, this is going on my picks of the week. And unless we record the day of the spoilers live, I might be too late. <laughs> so uh, did you? what did you get out of this tournament, James? Well, one of the funniest decks um, was the one we were talking about uh, off off recording, um, the Twin Moon Exarch deck, which I, I redubbed the Punch Me in the Face deck because I can't remember a deck that plays so many cards that your opponent will hate you for playing. Um, this deck runs four Deceiver Exarch and Pestermite alongside um, four Splinter Twins, so it's got that whole package. It's running four Blood Moons, four Chalice of the Void, um, and for force of will so it doesn't want you to do anything productive um, except watch it sit around and do th- uh, mess around with uh, its own uh, dirtlingness um, it's running two misdirection it's got three jace friends prodigy so take note that jace is not dead um, after his uh, adventures in standard folks um, he still needs to find a good deck in modern, but he's already well set up and established in, in legacy and vintage. And any card that is run as a three of or four of in those formats is almost certainly going to find a home in modern sooner or later. Um, yeah, I mean, this this is a deck I would hate to play against, um, and I would be embarrassed to play it against people, but I'm, it's a very techy deck, uh, kind of a mishmash of two or three different archetypes and uh, uh, an admirable build from its uh, Japanese master. Blood Moon and Chalice of the Void in the same deck is just delicious. Nobody anywhere gets to play Magic. Do you notice, also, by the way, this guy's running four main deck Blood Moon and has two islands. He has two lands in the deck that can produce blue mana underneath the moon. (laughs) That's greedy. This guy is greedy. Uh, Yeah, I also, the the Jace has also jumped out to me, too. You know, that's that's definitely telling us something right there. Uh, You know, it's not really a surprise that he's there. We've talked about that card being good in legacy in the past, but you know, here it is, we're seeing it at top eight at a 300 person event. So this is not just, just a a random four all on moto. Yeah. And I mean, there was two Jun decks in the, in this top eight that were both running four copies of dark confidant. That's a card that I think everybody should have their eye on. It'll probably show up on one of my buy lists at some point. Um, You know, it's, it has experienced a series of metagame shifts in the last couple of years that have relegated it to the sidelines in modern, but the card is just too powerful to stay there forever. And at some point we're going to be facing a metagame where Dark Confidant is again uh, a super powerful card. And at that point you're going to be wanting to have some copies stashed away. Yeah. I noticed over on the, uh, the sixth place deck or somewhere in the fifth to eighth range was lands which had four Life from the Loams, which is not a surprise to anybody, right? Lance runs Life from the Loam. But, you know, I had Loam on my pick of the week last week, and I almost wrote it down again this week until I realized I had it last week. I still really like Loam. Uh, We're seeing it here. It's being played in modern. It's being played enough that it's making top eights of large events. And I still really like that card, especially with Get Rog in modern. I just kind of wanted to point it out that there it is. We're still seeing it. There are people who need it who are playing it, uh, and, and I like it. I like it. I like long. All right. So our final segment of the week is our discussion segment. This week, we're going to be talking about buying collections, um, something that both Travis and I have some experience with. Um, Travis, can you break down for people kind of the, you know, the pillars of collection buying? What are the what are the top things people should be thinking about considering um, ways to get themselves set up to experiment with buying collections for profit? Well, the first thing 
that I'm going to tell you is that you got to make sure that you have the liquid capital for this. Don't overextend yourself and put yourself in a position um, where you're really going to be in trouble in your life if you don't have access to the money that you've sunk into this in in uh, within a very short time frame. And tying into that, and I think this is the most important part of all of this, is that you need it needs to be worth your time. It's really uh, alluring to look at a collection and see yourself getting a handful of cards uh, or a binder worth of cards for less than market and being excited about making money on it because you're buying them under, under, under the market values, which is all well and good, but you have to be able to turn that into an actual profit. And if it takes you 20 hours of work to eke out a $300 profit, uh, you're not making that much money on that. Um, I mean, maybe you end up making a little more than minimum wage. So if you're, you know, if you're not doing anything else, if you're a student, maybe it's worth it, but you really have to make sure that it's worth your time and your energy and that you even end up positive in the first place, because sometimes you don't even make it out ahead of the game, especially if you didn't happen to uh, do enough inventorying of that collection before you forked over the cash. Another thing that can happen if you get kind of ahead of yourself. Sure. I mean, one of the things I tell people all the time when they're asking me about getting into MDG finances, you know, never spend your your rent money, your clothing money, your food money, your baby money. Don't. This should be a disposable income driven part of the hobby for you. Um, you know, you should have. You should also have more secure kind of long term. Um, low yield, reliable investments in place for your retirement and so forth. This isn't the kind of thing you want to take, uh, you know, make the majority of your investment scenarios. Um, you don't want it to be the center of your investment universe personally. This is your kind of uh, fooling around, uh, attempting to achieve uh, higher yield returns um, while, uh, you know, being at the, you know, center point of your favorite hobby. So the, you know, keep that in mind before you jump in on collections. Um, you know, if you haven't done any MTG finance before, probably start off on, on something that is uh, a little uh, less complicated, that requires a little less, less effort. You know, pick a couple of, you know, mid, solid midterm specs, put some money in there, see how it turns out, track your progress, and then figure out where to go from there. Yeah, and, and I want to say also that I tend to think about buying collections um, in the cost of my expenses versus the uh, percentage uh, of the of the value of the collection. So, for instance, if uh, take a random collection, um, if I'm paying fifty percent of retail to buy that collection, I think that's too high. Fifty percent is generally the absolute top end for how much I would spend on a collection, and that has to be like I'd spend fifty percent if your collection was ten Jaces. Okay, because it's a very small number of cards that I can definitely make money on. But 50% on a collection that's got thousands and thousands of bulk or uncommons that are going to be really difficult to work with, uh, that's not going to be worth your time. So I th this is another thing. I, this is a strong, this is a number that can be very useful to you if you're looking at this types of thing. Uh, if you're spending, if you think the market value of a, okay, let me rephrase this. Whatever you think the market value of a collection is, you should almost definitely be spending less than 50%. You want to shoot for probably 20 or 30. Yeah, and, and to break this down for everybody to help them understand why this isn't just a ripoff scenario, um, this why this makes perfect sense, is that as you're trying to unload that collection, um, 
your easiest, quickest outlet is going to be to buy lists to a bigger vendor who is in- interested in taking on the inventory that's already been, you know, pre-vetted, pre-sorted, et cetera. Um, and, and not to try to sell the, the collection off a single card at a time over the course of many years, because your yield drops dramatically as the years dra- drag on and as you spend more and more time on the project. Um, one of the things that is uh, always, almost always overlooked um, by people involved in these kinds of scenarios is the time value of, of money, the, the, the value of your time in operating on the project has to be considered in your overall expense profile. So if you've got a, a $10,000 collection, and like Travis said, you're going to aim to pay, you know, at most something like three to 4000 for that collection. Um, the reason for that is that as you try to flip it to somebody else, you might only get something like 5000 to 5500 And you have to take into consideration all of the time you're going to spend, even if you're sitting on your couch and, and, you know, know, you're engaging in a Netflix session every night to parse a collection and get it ready for sale, as I did with the last big one I sold uh, in December. Um, You still have to consider that you could have been spending that time with your friends and family. You could have been spending it on other work side projects, work projects. Um, You have to value that time. So you have to look at what you would normally command per hour for that time and how it uh, digs into your, you know, your total disposable time and income to consider, you know, what the overall expense profile is when you're trying to flip that collection. Exactly. And the first time I did this, it was really exciting. I genuinely, thoroughly enjoyed the time I spent looking through the collection, pulling the cards out, finding the stuff that I hadn't found. That was really cool. So it's easy on the first one to not really factor that into your equation because the whole process is just fun. But by about the fourth or the fifth one, it is not romantic anymore. It's just a job. (laughs) And it's exactly the reason why I don't pursue collections aggressively anymore. And if you want to hear about what that what that lifestyle is like, go talk to Jeremy Aronson, who's a lengthy Zemet on Twitter, or Ryan Bouchard. I mean, they're like bouncing literal millions of cards back and forth, sorting and dealing with all that and buying collections. And I mean, Jeremy just rented an 18-wheeler last weekend to haul collections around and sort those. And I got to tell you, that gets real boring real fast. Um, and at a practical level, to, to make use of this information, when you're talking about buying collections from people, um, if it's another player or if it's somebody who looked up all the prices on Star City or something or Amazon where they found these numbers and they balk when you offer the n- number, I have found them fairly people fairly uh, receptive to me kind of explaining like, look, uh, this is going to take me a lot of time to make the money on um, and I will make a profit, but uh, it's going to take time. And for you right now... Uh, you, you know, they don't, you don't, you're the other, the person selling you the collection doesn't really have a great way to get rid of that. They don't have an outlet. They can look up the market value, but they don't actually have a way to sell those cards. All they can do is take them to a local store and hope that the store offers them more. And if you explain like, look, it's going to take me 15 hours to part sort this and sell the parts. Uh, and, you know, if I make $500 on this, you know, this is what my hourly rate is, which isn't bad. But that also, I'm also getting paid not only for the hours of my work, but how much knowledge and education I have on this topic. Your knowledge is worth money uh, in the same way that someone's knowledge about any topic is worth money. It's the reason why a logo designer who has been in the business for 30 years can charge thousands and thousands of dollars for a logo that only takes him 20 hours to make. Well, that's because you're paying for the 30 years of experience. So your experience is worth time. 
your knowledge is worth time and the amount of raw hours you spend sitting with those cards in your hands are worth time. And make sure that it's worth your time when you do this. And if people start to complain, gently point that out. And I think in general, you'll find people are reasonably receptive to that. Exactly. And I mean, to give everybody an example, the biggest collection I bought was something I picked up last summer um, where we we spent 14125 US um, for what I figured was about a twenty dollars to $25,000 collection. And my plan originally was just to flip it to a local dealer, um, maybe pocket 1000 or $1,500 and, and away we go. As it turns out, the collection was worth thirty-eight thousand five, and you would think that that would be, you know, a massive profit. But in reality, once it had been shopped around for three to four months to various parties all over North America, it turned out that uh, the, the best offer that anybody was willing to table was somewhere in the twenty-three thousand to twenty-four thousand dollar range, which was still a tidy profit. All after all was said and done, um, but. Again, keep in mind that you're not going to get full retail. Now, I could have chosen to try to sell those cards one by one by one for uh, a period of time to try to get a higher profit level. But when I started to take into account the fact that you know this is not my day job and I don't want it to be, and I have you know I I have a a, a nice career that provides for me well, and that I only want to spend five or ten hours a week on MTG Finance in general, it just made no sense. There there was no way that it, it it made sense from a time perspective. It didn't make sense from a profit pursuit perspective because um, when you sell your first collection. Um, if you try to sell it piece by piece, and you might, um, you're going to assume that you're just going to throw a list up on Craigslist or Facebook or something, and you're going to get a, a a ton of phone calls and everybody's or or emails or messages, and people are just going to show up on your doorstep and whisk away these cards, and eighty or ninety percent of the thing is going to be gone in a week. <laughs> Let me tell you, folks, it does not work like that. Not if you try to all. sell, if you try to sell off any large group of magic cards um, on a one by one basis by posting lists, you're talking about um, the best of the best from the collection being skimmed off the top kind of right away, the top five or 10% of cards. Um, those might disappear in a week or so if you give them decent exposure uh, in multiple points of sale. Um, the next group of cards uh, might go over the course of the next three months or so, say the top 25% is gone at that point. And now you've got a problem because now you're holding a bunch of cards that are in lesser demand. Um, it's harder to sell them as a package because they don't really have the cream on the top that has the 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 potential for large gains um, that gets uh, other vendors excited to be taking possession, um, and you know now you could get stuck holding the majority of those cards. Whereas if you had kept it all together and the list you were providing to people had some really sexy stuff at the top. So for instance, in the super collection that I sold. Um, we had a complete set of pristine duels. So it was four of all of the unlimited duels. Um, and there was probably another 10 or 15,000 in cards worth $100 or more. So it, it was a very top-heavy collection, which made it easier to, to resell. Um, and you know, those are the kinds of things you've got to be considering. So one of the pieces of advice I give people all the time on this topic is start small. Um, I think Travis would agree with me that to go out buy a collection for a few hundred dollars, um, you know, that's maybe it's six hundred retail and you're going to pay two fifty or three hundred or something, and sort through it, um, experiment with different ways of unloading it, see how that process goes, see how you felt about the process, 
Um, and then be honest with yourself about how much time you spent and how much money you got out of it and compare it to your other opportunities for income and see if it's something that you were just fooling around with or something that you could um, predictably make money doing uh, as a repetitious act. Um, Travis, I really thought that your, your point about um, a hobby becoming a job is an excellent warning sign um, for people involved in this or, you know, action figure finance, video game finance, what have you. The deeper you get into the finance side, the more it is a job, the less it is a hobby, and the less fun you will have overall. And that's definitely one of the, the costs to going down this road. Yeah, your point about it being difficult to get rid of these cards or like selling the cream of the crop immediately and then slowly being left with all the, you know, the sort of fat afterwards is so true. I have cards listed for sale on TCG Player right now that I'm pretty sure I pulled out of the first collection I bought six years ago. That That is how long I have had those cards. They have been passed through trade binders and eventually on the TCG Player and still haven't sold. Uh, so some that stuff can take so long to get out of. So you really, when you're buying the collection, you shouldn't even be saying, am I buying at, you know, 20 or 30% of market, but you, you almost want to look at it and say, all right, here are like the 10 to 15% of cards I can actually sell. How will that, what position will that put me in? Will that get me into the black? Because if that won't get you there, it is going to be a lot of work to get your money out of that collection. Yeah, and it's dangerous to think of uh, a collection acquisition as a long-term spec, because you, um, if you're if you're buying a large basket of cards, you really want to be more tactical about what cards are in that basket. And a collection is so random that even though any kind of any collection is likely to go up over time, unless it was somebody who was collecting Fallen Empires cards exclusively, um you have other options. It's also worth considering that if you're going to go out and buy $500 collections, you could just be um, slithering around on eBay looking for $750 cards that sell too low on auctions because they were posted at the wrong time. Um, you know, flip flip a $800 card that you picked up for $499 on an eBay auction on a Friday night at midnight or something. And, um, you know, you may spend way less time for just about the same kind of profit. Yeah, and I will admit it's a lot of fun to do collections, and I enjoy it, and it can make you money, and you can have fun with it, but um, you you just got to be careful because it's very easy to fall in love with the idea and end up uh, not only it not being worth your time, but you actually losing money. Just just be careful of that, and uh, just and as a really quick note, even though we need to end the show, uh, watch for condition because that will bite you in the ass, especially if you're looking at the collection in an area that is not well lit. Um, but James, I'm pretty sure we are pushing an hour at this point uh, or close to it. So do you want to finish up here? Sure thing. So everybody, thank you for your time and attention today. Uh, uh, where can people find you, Travis? Well, I am on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Wednesday for mtgprice.com, and I occasionally show up on the podcast uh, Cartel Aristocrats. And how about you? You guys can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. Great. I thought we had some excellent conversation this week, James. So did I, Travis, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.